You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to the Tech Tank Podcast. We are so excited about this particular episode because this is a topic that we just don't get into enough, and that is local news in the age of the internet. Let me start by sharing some facts generated by the Rebuild Local News Coalition, founded by one of our guests, longtime media advocate Steve Walden. On average, two newspapers shut down per week in the U.S., The number of newsroom employees have declined by 57% since 2004. Newspaper advertising has also been greatly affected by these disruptions. Can you imagine 81% decline in revenue since 2000 or $40 billion collectively? That's a lot of money. And then more than 1,800 communities across the U.S. are without a local news media outlet, making the internet the most reliable source for their consumption. Now, I don't know. I've been in this a long time. I've known Steve for a long time, and Courtney's a new friend. Some have argued that the online sphere has given way to opportunities for civic journalism, but also increased myths and disinformation. False headlines, illegitimate news stories, combined with a general aggregation of content that is devised by individuals in polarized communities that in this age of the internet have generated many consequences, both in democratic and authoritarian societies. Friends, you add in artificial intelligence that I work on, and we see this amplification of both messages and audiences. Our information economy begins to look like smoky mirrors that distort what everyday people believe in and how they act in critical realms of education, voting, and civil engagement. Listen, I'm excited about this episode because we're about to delve into the broad topic of what has happened to traditional media and how is the degradation of this local asset going to perpetuate misinformation? I'm excited because Courtney's going to help us explore how citizens are rebelling against some of these norms and potentially constructing new paths into qualified journalism and storytelling, which may reduce some of the inauthenticity that's showing up online. So put on your seatbelts and let me welcome our guest, Courtney Raj, who's a postdoctoral fellow at UCLA, who wrote a great piece for us at Brookings on our Tech Tank blog around the relationship between big tech and journalism. And Steve Waldman, who is CEO and founder of Rebuild Local News, a former FCC leader and someone I've known for many, many years. Right, Steve? Thank you both for joining me. (laughs) Thanks, Nicole. Great to be here. So, Steve, I want to start with you. I used to say that Cam Curry was the only person who would pitch a tent when it came to public policy around data privacy. Now I'm convinced that you are going to pitch a tent until we get a really credible local news uh, ecosystem. (laughs) So I, I shared some of your stats, and I really would like you to sort of break down for our listeners what is going on with today's media and why has this disruption happened so quickly? Yeah, it really has happened quickly, and it's it's really hard to get one's head around how big the collapse has been 
and how quickly, as you said, 57% drop just since 2004 in the number of editorial staff. And it's had this ripple effect throughout the entire ecosystem. There's about 1,800 communities that have no local news source at all, and thousands more that have basically what we call ghost newspapers. That's a new term of art that has popped up. And that's basically newspapers that are coming out, they're printing, there's paper and there's articles from wire services, but almost no local coverage. So around the country, you're having less and less coverage of the communities. And we know from our own experience and from all sorts of academic studies that the consequences of this are really severe. When you have less local news, you have more corruption, lower voting turnout, more government waste, more pollution, lower bond ratings, all sorts of bad things happen in communities. And then on top of that, more recently, we started to see what you were hinting at earlier, which is an effect from the local news collapse on misinformation and polarization. And that seems to happen because you essentially have a vacuum that's created by the collapse of local news and it's being filled by other things. And the other things are social media and cable TV and talk radio and other things. So in addition to all the kind of traditional harms, I would say of of the disintegration of local news, you now have the fact that it is a major contributor to the sort of fragmenting of our country and the spread of misinformation. And to your question about why it happened so fast, well, it really was that the internet kind of destroyed the business models of of local news. Uh, you know, it, to really oversimplify it, businesses that previously advertised in local newspapers found it better to advertise instead online, first with websites like cars.com and Craigslist and things like that, and then ultimately with Google and Facebook. And that's what led to this massive deterioration. And I hope we get back to that because I think the business model is something that I think many people just don't understand why we don't see a lot of those local newspapers, even if they were online, right? We don't see that local news. And and Steve, just to stay on you for a moment, you know, I remember growing up that we had the standard star in New Rochelle, New York, where I grew up in Westchester County, right? And I remember in Harlem, there was Amsterdam News, which is part of the Black press. We believed in those stories, right? Because those stories were about local people, local events, and they were also, you know, highlighting activities and other things that were happening. I mean, I remember there were like Girl Scout announcements of what was happening with local troops. Now, I'm not going to say that I don't go to the internet for news, but what part of this new ecosystem are we also missing that makes it really harder to justify, right? When you have something as massive as a an internet that has much more mass production of media. Yeah, well, that gets to this this sort of dilemma when you're explaining this to other people is that if, if you're not like studying this every day, the idea that there's a shortage of local news or a shortage of anything seems ridiculous, right? We're overwhelmed by information coming at us from every direction. So, People have no shortage of information about a wide variety of things, but what's lost is reporting about local matters. You, weirdly enough, in this environment, you're, the, the more local the election in your area, the less likely you are to have good information. 
you get information about presidential campaign and the governorship and the Senate. But when you get down to school board and county commission and things like that, there's very little information. And you see that happen over and over again. And why does that matter? Well, on a simple level, it's just impossible for a community to solve its own problems if it doesn't have a good sense of what the problems are, mm-hmm. have a shared set of facts. It secondly matters because, you know, governments that aren't being watched tend to do badly or become inefficient or corrupt. And then the last reason is that I think healthy local media actually binds a community together. It helps people to understand each other. It celebrates as well as criticizes. It's as much about the high school sports stories as it is about holding the mayor accountable. Those functions are important too, because they really make people understand each other, their neighbors as human beings instead of as caricatures. When we all are just consuming national ideological partisan material, We're just turning each other into cartoon characters, and that spills into the health of a community. Wow. Yeah, I want to get back to that. And uh, Courtney, I mean, you wrote about that and suggested this tension, as well as, you know, where we're seeing some coalescing between big tech and journalism in your recent blog with us. Talk to us a little bit more about, one, responding to, to Steve's comments around this erosion of local media and what might be behind it, but also what's the tension, right, between big tech and journalism? Are, are they meant to coexist in the same space or are they really, you know, just two separate spheres that we need to start paying attention to? Thanks, Nicole. I couldn't agree more with what Steve laid out in terms of the importance of local media and the role that it plays in communities. And my work focuses globally. So this is not just a U.S. issue. It's a global issue. There are news deserts, local news deserts around the world. Many of them um, are caused by the decline in a viable commercial media model, the inability to raise revenue online. Others are caused by repression. That's kind of a different issue. But I think if we look at the big tech media relationship, it's really one of both symbiosis and tension. Um, And if you think about the symbiosis, on the one hand, Tech platforms want good, reliable information on their platforms. And we can see this by the investment that Google and Facebook in particular have made in supporting fact-checking on their platforms. They are supporting hundreds of projects, media outlets, the International Fact-Checking Network, et cetera, around the world because they want to have good, reliable information on their platforms. They understand that it's not only a problem when people can't get good information, but it's also putting them in regulatory crosshairs. Similarly, the news media needs big tech because that's where the audience is. That big tech also owns the underlying ad tech infrastructure on which contemporary business models are built. And I think that we have to really think about that. This is more than just what gets posted on social media, because Google and Facebook in particular 
control the lion's share of where the audience is, but they also control the underlying infrastructure that makes digital advertising work. They control vast swaths of data that fuel personalized, targeted recommender systems. They control access to data and information that would allow publishers to actually understand the link between revenue and traffic. The platforms also control the logic of publication and dissemination. And what I mean by that is their their content moderation rules, their terms of service, their community guidelines, um, their policies all shape the editorial and business strategies of news media. And so you've seen that not only have local media seen their business models decimated, but they've also have to adapt to the algorithmic logic of these platforms, which means that you hear a lot of journalists complain about having to play to the algorithm. What does well on social media may not be what is actually healthy for democracy or for creating a healthy information ecosystem. Similarly, it creates perverse incentives, uh, you know, and clickbait, headlines that capture attention, et cetera, which is really hard for local news to compete with because local news is not competing on scale. You know, we have to really think about the design of these platforms as well as the sort of regulatory um, interventions that might be possible to help support local media. So I like what you're talking about, and I want to stay there for just a second. And I want us to sort of unpack part of the reason that the internet has been so successful is because it has, to your point, consumers that find this to be a very sexy, easy way to access any type of information that they want. And I do a lot of work, Courtney, as you know, on algorithmic bias, and we see a lot of that there. I mean, to a certain extent, outside of the business models eroding in this new digital ecosystem, are consumers, readers, subscribers partially responsible for this as well? And are we sort of wrapped up in the sensationalism of the internet in, in ways that really we need to talk about that too and be transparent about that too? I don't necessarily think it's about the sensationalism of the internet because it's really about the design of a particular set of dominant platforms, namely Meta, which owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and Google, which also owns YouTube, and of course, their ownership of the underlying ad tech. They are the most popular top 10 platforms by size and revenue with the exception of Chinese platforms. So they're dominant. It doesn't mean that the internet itself is sensationalist. The business models of these private companies are favoring sensationalism and extremism. The design of their business models, of their algorithms, encourage that sort of captured attention, trying to keep people on their platforms as long as possible, trying to drive engagement. So that will drive more eyeballs, more time on digital advertising. It does not have to be that way. Let's also remember that these platforms are actually not really publishers as much as they are data collectors. I mean, they have created the economic conditions because of a lack of regulatory framework around data collection, aggregation, and sale. And I think that's really the core of it because 
publishers face a constrained choice set. And so does the audience. The audience is engaging in the media environment that they're given. They can try to create their own media environments. Um, but again, they're using tools that are free, that are easily available. And it's really important is where their friends and networks are. And network effects are really important for describing why you see some of these dominant platforms. So I don't think it's fair to put all of the impetus on the audience because they're working within the constraints that they're provided by these dominant media players. You can't expect everyone to go look for alternative media. It's never been like that, right? Mother Jones has always been a specialized publication, right? Whereas the main broadcasters are where you used to have most of the eyeballs. It's the same thing today. Most people are on the main platforms. That's right. I mean, that, those are good points. Steve, you want to respond before we go into the next question? Well, just one other just amendment. I really liked what Courtney said. One amendment on tech companies. I was in Wyoming recently meeting with some local newspaper publishers, and they started talking about how the tech companies were devastating them. And I assumed they were talking about Google and Facebook, but it turned out they were talking about Amazon. And the way they were looking at it was their business model was based on advertising from Main Street businesses, which had in turn been undermined by Amazon. Now, that's a long-term thing. It doesn't have to do with media as much, but it was interesting that on the ground, the there's a third tech company that has generated irritation from local publishers. And that's interesting because I think what we're seeing on the publishing side are just different production strategies that are really impacting the way in which we generate, you know, and produce media, but also how we distribute and disseminate it. So I don't know. That sounds like maybe another podcast discussion, but that is so interesting what you shared. And Steve, it also like uh, dawns on me as Courtney was also speaking that I do agree that we can't put it on consumers to make the determinations around what type of platform or where they choose to get their news. We just know that the, the what I heard Courtney say is like the technological ecosystem is designed to sort of generate those types of preferences. And as we all know in this call, at the end of the day, those preferences can become very discriminatory if the algorithm itself is, is profiling people based on their data in particular. But I do want to point out there are instances though where the internet has been useful to underserved and marginalized communities, right? Think about what happened in Memphis. In terms of that recording those body cam, it was shared among social media. And there were a lot of pieces that provided some really good thought analysis as to policing in America, rogue police officers, whether or not race is a factor. Isn't part of the local news ecosystem this authentic storytelling that allows us to get down and dirty on some of the more provocative issues that we see in our society? The story of the internet's effect on news has two sides, clearly. There's a tremendous amount of innovation and better storytelling. And I think for marginalized communities or even niche communities of any kind, the internet has been an incredible blessing. It's enabled smaller communities or communities of people that might be more isolated to connect with each other across the country, to publish things very low-cost ways. So the irony is that if we were able to get to a system where we had enough reporters, 
we'd probably have a better local news system than we've ever had before because the tools that reporters have and the tools that citizens have to share information like that are much greater. Now, of course, the tools with which to share misinformation are also better. And that's, of course, the other problem is that for each example you have of an important truth that gets uncovered or shared, there's probably five others that involve falsehoods. Courtney, what do you think about that? Because I mean, I think your work also spans globally where you do talk about in some of your research on how communities that are marginalized or multi-marginalized are using these new media to actually re-articulate their story and, and show some resistance at that, right? I was looking at some of your stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for, for more than a decade, I, I really started this work in depth in advance of the so-called Arab Spring and, you know, on the ground in Egypt, watching citizen journalists start using these tools to get out a different version of the story from state-dominated media. And that continues, you know, platforms are really important, especially in closed media systems in places where there is a state-dominated media system or really limited other avenues for publication or broadcast. And so these platforms have been transformative in that sense, both in terms of allowing them to bypass state censorship or state capture, but also for telling their stories to the world. You know, hearing from Ukrainian media or Afghan media or Burmese media during the crises there was really critical for those independent voices to talk about what they were seeing on the ground, especially think about Syria, where you couldn't have reporters from abroad going because it was so dangerous. And it became really up to these independent reporters on the ground using platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to get their stories out and try to not only tell their stories directly to the audience, but also use those platforms to influence the global news agenda. Because there's always been kind of this dominance of Western global media outlets, and the platforms have helped equalize that a little bit. But they also, these media, and especially in developing countries, face a real constrained choice set when it comes to the platforms they use, because there are a handful of dominant ones. I think the Amazon dynamic that Steve mentioned doesn't really apply yet in much of the developing world and the global south or majority world, as, as we call it now. But if you're in a country that restricts access to the airwaves or has high levels of government intervention in the media, limits journalistic independence, social media and messaging platforms provide a precarious lifeline, really important for these small independent media to grow, but also very costly because they are at the mercy of the platforms, their rules, their mercurial decisions about whether or not they want to favor news or news from friends or video or, you know, text or or whatever that's going to be. And then couple that with their content moderation decisions. You know, I spend a lot of time talking to media in the Middle East who publish in Arabic. And it's so difficult because their content just trying to cover key issues about political parties in their region like Hamas or Hezbollah end up getting censored in these content moderation systems. And so it becomes really difficult because on the one hand, they really need these platforms to access their audience, but also a global audience. On the other hand, they're very constrained 
also not just by the platform's logic, but by the fact that like US and European geopolitics shapes how those platforms end up moderating content and has an outsized impact on the news. There was a Ukrainian news site that had 100 million visitors before the war, went up to 900 million a few days after the invasion, and saw its revenue drop to zero. No advertisers showing up on its platform because advertisers were reticent to advertise anywhere that had conflict. You know, they wanted to stay away from violent imagery and then sanctions impacted the ability of Afghan media to monetize. So it's really complicated and it's not just about platform dynamics. They are also embedded in national systems that have geopolitical implications. Well, you know, and I think on that point, and Steve, jump in if I'm wrong. I mean, I think we've seen that here in the United States too, right? Where we've, and to this current day, where we've had to see very progressive movements sort of go underground in terms of their media development so that they were not surveilled and basically broken up as a result of the impact of that surveillance. I mean, that's, that's the thing for me which is so interesting about this whole conversation, which is why I'm so excited we're having it. Because we have this one issue where we do need a public square, but that public square, according to your point, has become private companies, right? They have become the private square. And Steve, I don't know if you remember, because I know you've been doing this a long time. Years ago, the Knight Foundation sort of inquired about this. Before that, we talked about uh, at various stages of our careers, the public square being the private square. When you think about local news, you talk about it, and you've talked about it for years as a public good. Why is that the case and how compelling is that to policymakers? Yeah, I think it is. It's a public good first in the sort of sense that economists use the term, which means it's offering services that have broad public benefits and yet which would not be captured necessarily in terms of a functional, sustainable business. You know, a newspaper that writes about a dysfunctional hospital or something like that is saving potentially thousands of people from bad care or things like that, but it doesn't necessarily translate into subscription revenue or advertising revenue. So it's providing great value in a diffuse, broad way to a whole community without necessarily having a strong business model. I think it also has a kind of more colloquial meaning, which is that there's a value to the health of a community from having common information. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I got obsessed with the history of Brooklyn at one point. And there was this book that said, Brooklyn died in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. It's doing quite well now, but for a while it was really underwater. And they said the three reasons it died were that the Brooklyn Navy Yard closed, the Brooklyn Dodgers left town, and the Brooklyn Eagle shut down, the newspaper. So having a local news source is a form of identity, a common identity, and a way for people to understand each other. Even things like obituaries, you know, the, the reading about the other people in your community and understanding them as people, this is such a basic thing that we kind of used to take for granted. Is, is not there anymore, or at least not in the same way. And when you think about, though, this public good, though, I mean, is this something that, and, and Courtney really referenced the fact that we've seen social media sort of advance into this accelerated space. 
is because of the lack of regulation. What do you think needs to be the public policy intervention that has to happen to bring us back to the central goal of local news? Well, to start with, there's been very little discussion until quite recently about public policy interventions to help local news. It just wasn't on the radar screen, partly because the collapse of local news is so sudden and recent, but also because journalists tend to be opposed to any kind of government policy for good reasons. You know, the fear that of government manipulation in rewarding some publishers over others or endangering the First Amendment, which are all legitimate concerns, but that's kind of stifled the discussion about public policy. So I, I kind of break it into two buckets. One is our policies that in effect provide subsidies, just of one form or another. Now we tend to think of that as, oh, like, you know, public broadcasting, that's certainly one model, but there are other ways to do that too. You know, the old postal subsidy of the founding fathers era happened through on postal rates. I think the kind of modern equivalent of that is something like there's a bill that we like very much, which has provided a refundable tax credit to news organizations for the hiring or retaining of local reporters. So it's got a good set of incentives. It is a subsidy in effect, but it's done in a without there being a lot of subjective judgments about content, it's more universal than that. So there's various ideas that kind of fall in the category of subsidies. Then, um, as Courtney discussed, and as you know from your work, Nicole, there's all sorts of other types of public policies that actually implicate local news as a side effect sometimes and sometimes directly. For instance, antitrust policy. Now, there's a lot of discussion about antitrust as it relates to Google and Facebook, but what about antitrust as it relates to the hedge funds and private equity firms that have bought up so many of the newspapers in the country. About half of the daily newspaper circulation in America now is owned by a financial firm, a hedge fund or a private equity firm. And the overwhelming evidence is that when that happens, they cut newsrooms disproportionately, even more than, than the rest. So that's an example of like, well, shouldn't antitrust policy be taking into consideration the devastating effects of a merger on a community and the information that's going out into residents. So there, there are things like that that are not direct subsidies, but where government policy can help create a more level playing field that would allow for innovation and better service to people. And Courtney, just to pick up on the public policy angle, if we regulate things like content moderation, try to look at some of the monopolistic practices of companies that are shepherding um, the, the media space in terms of you know social media companies and others, uh, if we try to put in more safeguards on data privacy, does that answer it or do we need other interventions to cultivate a healthy local news ecosystem? I think we need a combination of interventions. So one, I think we do need to level the playing field when it comes to how companies are treated, make sure that they pay taxes. I think we need to rethink we need to take a look at intermediary liability protections and how those have been operationalized versus, you know, what Section 230 in the law actually says. And I do think that, you know, Steve hit the nail on the head in terms of looking at some public policy interventions with respect to directly supporting 
news organizations through subsidies or tax breaks. But I think it's also worth looking at some of the other approaches that are being taken around the world. For example, rethinking intellectual property rights to give news publishers either the right to claim copyright protections, the right to license their content, which is often used for free by news aggregators and other online services. Critics have referred to this as a link tax and claimed that it would break the internet. The EU copyright directive is in effect, and so far the internet still works, so yay. But this idea of Facebook has like keep saying recently that, oh, only 3% of the content that people post or, or look at on Facebook is news. And I just think that is not accurate. And even if it is, we have to look at the broader ecosystem that we need to have, which has to include local media, because that is what links journalism and their communities to those in power, not just political power, but also economic power. So I think looking at leveling the playing field through, for example, increasing news media bargaining power through antitrust exemptions or um, imposing transparency requirements that try to redress market distortions that are caused by information asymmetries. One of the fascinating things I found in my research for the, the paper making big tech pay for the news they use is that we just lack the data to make a clear determination or really understand the link between revenue and different types of traffic and and where at least a third of kind of the digital advertising revenue just kind of disappears in the chain according to a study by PricewaterhouseCooper so there's a lot of unknowns that i think we could address through transparency mandates through um, requirements for access to data and through better regulation around content moderation and ensuring that there is some form of remedy for anyone, but particularly news organizations that are disproportionately affected by content moderation. And I say that because in uh, the Global South, for example, I've I've been talking to journalists around the world um, in, in more than 30 countries. And they keep talking about how they are held hostage to these content moderation systems and news does not have a long shelf life. So waiting for six months or a year for the Facebook oversight board to take a look at a piece of content or your for your 30 days in Facebook jail to be up or if your YouTube channel gets closed down, that has a real very negative impact on news organizations. There was a, a an outlet in Nicaragua, for example, 100% Noticias, which got raided by, um, by the authorities, shut down. They took over their archives. They kicked them out of the office. They put the two directors in prison. When they got out, they went into exile, restarted up their radio station online using YouTube. And then the authorities, someone close to the president, filed a digital millennium copyright notice, a takedown against um, against them for using clips of the president's speech. And there was no recourse for them until months of when I worked at the Committee to Protect Journalists. We spent months trying to get their account reopened. Meanwhile, you have fake news farms around the world that are plagiarizing news content and repurposing it and making money off of it. So, you know, I think when we think about regulatory interventions, we also need to think about how to make the platforms more responsible for protecting good information, essentially news and journalistic information, both on the supply and the demand side. 
You know, and I think it's so interesting, and we're going to start to wrap up because I think, you know, Courtney, you just said so much around like this tension that we have. And it goes back to Steve's earlier point about business models. Like we never really talk about that. When we talk about the degradation of local news, we sort of share the story of the devastation of paper, right? And what happens when we move out of what we consider to be analog systems. But what's also interesting, and and Steve, just, you know, as, as we wrap up, and I would like to hear from Courtney and you, that this is really a, a story about media in general, right? We're seeing, we saw something like this, don't you think, Steve, when we went from local media broadcast channels to cable networks? We continue to see the FCC's media ownership report just came out, less than 3% of stations, full power broadcast stations owned by women and people of color. You know, who's telling the story matters. The difference, I think, this time around is that that still holds true. But also it has a lot to do with the resources that it sounds like we can invest to not only hold these platforms, but to direct these platforms to maximize the benefit of shareholders. I mean, I, you know, I'm saying it, but I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, it's such a different environment. For both of you, five years, 10 years, is this the future of media or are we going to fight darn hard to get it back to our local representation, our public good of local news consumption? Steve, go ahead, and then we'll wrap up with Courtney. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think we're really at a crossroads, and you can see two really very different visions for what might happen. If we keep going the way we're going, I think we'll end up with a tribal system on the local level that resembles kind of what we have on national cable TV. It'll be opinion and partisan content and stuff like that. I think there is an opportunity for us to create a, a different future that is more focused and deliberate around civically important local news. But to do that, we're going to have to make some investments. For one thing, the good news about the last five years is there's been a kind of a, a real flowering of innovation. There's about 300, 350 brand new local nonprofit news organizations all over the country. They're mostly pretty small and, and frail, but they're getting there and they're growing. And if we as individuals and foundations and the government support these things, you will have a kind of new system of local reporting that will supplement the commercial media. So that's, you know, that's really encouraging. I, I think we also will need public policy that helps create incentives both to help this nonprofit media world, but also to push the commercial media in the right direction. You know, there has been really, really great commercial media in the past. There is still some, but right now the ownership structures and the financing systems are pushing it all in the wrong direction. So we can address that through policy. And then some of it is just up to us as individuals and residents and consumers. It's going to sound pretty dumb and obvious, but subscribe to the local newspaper, or if you don't like it, donate to a local nonprofit. Like it's at the end of the day, we're not going to have community journalism unless the community supports it somehow. And that's the bottom line. Courtney, you want to take us out? Yeah, I agree with everything Steve said. I think we have to help people understand the value of journalism in their daily lives and to their lived experience, not only at the kind of national level, which is an issue around the world. I think we need to help 
the public as well as policymakers understand the return on investment on investigative reporting, on watchdog reporting, but also on quotidian beat reporting. There's so much emphasis these days on, you know, media and information literacy. Let's help people become better at identifying and being resilient against disinformation. One of the best ways to do that is to make sure that they are generally educated and literate. And part of that is local news covering what's happening in City Hall, covering local economics, you know, journalism often serves as a form of civic education. And I think that is one of the root causes of disinformation and um, the lack of resiliency. But I think we also have to be realistic in terms of the precarity of a nonprofit model that relies on private foundations and donors to sustain itself, which is equally precarious as having all of your eggs in the social media basket, right? So the risk of capture by donor priorities, I hear this a lot from my interviews with media organizations that receive overseas development assistance or media development funding, which is this donor wants more coverage of gender. And so you get more coverage of gender, which might be great, but maybe that you know wasn't the priority of that news organization. So thinking about how to ensure and maintain editorial independence and integrity is going to be something we need to think about regardless of which business model we kind of emphasize. But I think more importantly is the foundational principle of media freedom. You need safety and security for you know the reporters, first of all. You need pluralistic media. You need independent media. You need pluralistic ownership, diverse sources of funding. And public service media is not a business proposition. So there has to be some sort of public support for media. And the more safeguards that you can put against political interference, and the further that you can kind of move that from the center of political power, the better. So for example, giving people tax vouchers to pay for a subscription to whatever local news organization they want seems like a really promising idea because it empowers individuals to choose their news and it takes power away from those in politics to determine the winners and losers. So I think at the end of the day, we need a diverse set of public policy interventions and we need those to be really focused on preventing media capture and minimizing political and economic influence. Yeah, I know, right? We used to call, or we still do, propaganda, right? We have a lot of political influence over stuff. But this has been like a great conversation because I think in the end, what it's teaching me, and again, I stand by this whole concept that I think we can actually reduce misinformation, disinformation, if we just had validated local goods. I'm, I'm going to keep, uh, Steve, what you keep saying is public good. And I think, Courtney, to your point, and we understand just how you know, much our, our media ecosystem gets stretched by these influences in ways that we need to really think carefully around the kind of safeguards that we need to put in place. And I do agree with you. This is no longer your grandmother's internet or your grandmother's newspaper. This is a totally different type of delivery of service that, as we talked about in the beginning, that is driven largely by advertising. So the extent to which we can, again, develop more, I love it, pluralistic media ecosystems, the better we will be. 
this is a hard topic and it was a hard topic to deal with in this short period of time. So I'm going to have that big back to come and talk more about this. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be with you. Yes, it's a conversation for all of you who are listening that we are going to continue to have. And it's one that you heard is very complicated. It's going to take an all hands on deck strategy, both at the public policy level and the community engagement level for people to sort of understand how we rethink uh, our local news culture and how that really, you know, is absorbed alongside these new emerging innovations that allow for news to be disseminated much more quickly. And with that, I want to thank you for joining Tech Tank, where we take gigabytes in tech policy conversations and make them into palatable bites. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation and many others as part of our show. We appreciate you listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.